Take a Bible out this morning. We're going to look at a number of different passages, and I'm going to put most of these on the screen, but you may want to flip around as we talk about these scriptures this morning. There's an outline in the bulletin. Uh, these are out in the foyer. If you didn't pick one of those up on the way in, you might want to step out and grab one of those. You can track along with some of the main ideas in the message. And again, I'll remind you that here in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. The elements will not be coming by. We're not going to pass them out. Uh, they're available out in the front foyer. They're also available out in this side hallway. So uh, if you need bread and the cup for the Lord's Supper in a few moments, you can step out and pick those up. Uh, those are available for you out in the foyer in the hallway. This is our fourth and final Sunday this year thinking about the character of God. This is a series that we actually started back in uh, 2020, last year. We talked last year about God's holiness, his self-existence, his sovereignty, his goodness, his faithfulness, his power, his patience, his wrath, his love. Over the last couple of weeks uh, here in 2021, we've talked about God's omniscience and his omnipresence and his eternity. And this morning, we're going to talk about God's wisdom. I'm going to share with you a quote from A.W. Tozer. I think this is a helpful uh, jumping in point as we think about the wisdom of God. He says, when Christian theology declares that God is wise, it means vastly more than it says or can say, for it tries to make a comparatively weak word, and that comparatively weak word that he's talking about is wisdom or saying that God is wise, tries to make a comparatively weak word bear an incomprehensible plenitude of meaning that threatens to tear it apart and crush it under the sheer weight of the idea. That's a fancy way of saying when we say that God is wise, it's a gross understatement. It's the equivalent of saying the Grand Canyon is big or the Mariana Trench is deep. Or Michael Jordan is good at basketball. All of those are true statements, but none of those statements really captures the idea of what you're trying to communicate. When you say the Grand Canyon is big, or this trench in the ocean is deep, or Michael Jordan is good at putting a round ball into a hoop. When we say that God is wise, it is an incredible understatement. The idea of God's wisdom threatens to tear apart, as Tozer would say, the word itself. And so we're going to try to think rightly about God's wisdom this morning. What do we mean when we talk about God's wisdom? For starters, theologians recognize God as omnisapient or all wise. We've talked about some of the omnis this year and some last year. There's several omnis, that's a, a Latin prefix that means all. Several omnis that are regularly used. We talk about God's omniscience, that's he is all-knowing. We talk about God's omnipotence, that's he's all-powerful. We've talked about God's omnipresence, that means he is present everywhere. Usually, theologians just say that God is wise, but sometimes they use this term omnisapient to mean that he is all-wise or perfectly wise. Isaiah 40 Verse 28 is helpful. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His understanding is unsearchable. 
Romans 16, 27, Paul says it like this, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. There's other places where Paul talks about wisdom in a human sense, but in the ultimate sense, he's saying there is only one ultimately that is wise. He is the only wise God, the truly wise God. He's omnisapient. Theologians also make this point. The wisdom of God involves God working towards the greatest end through the best means. I came across this idea over and over and over again. I started to pull a quote here or a quote there from this theologian or that theologian. All of them just kept coming back to this same idea. When we say that God is wise, what we're saying is that he pursues the greatest end, the greatest final result, and he pursues the greatest final result in the best way or through the best means. Now, as Americans, I think we appreciate half of that definition. Americans tend to be very pragmatic. Americans tend to say, I don't care how you get where you're going as long as you get there in the end. In a real sense, we're heirs to an ancient school of philosophy known as consequentialism. Consequentialism can be summed up with this tagline, you've probably heard it, the end justifies the means. As long as you get to the right end, it doesn't matter how you get there. That tends to be a very American way of thinking. We just want results. Whatever it takes, however you have to get there, the end justifies the means. That's not biblical wisdom. That might be American wisdom. It might be pragmatic wisdom. It might be wisdom from an ancient school of philosophy. It's not biblical wisdom because when we talk about God being omnisapient or all-wise, we're saying, yes, he's shooting for, he's aiming for, he's moving towards the greatest end result, but he's also using the best, wisest, most pure means to get there. If you get confused about what the end is, you're going to struggle to make sense of God's wisdom. And so we've got to add this to our definition. We've got to make sure we're square on this. The wisdom of God only makes sense when you realize that God's chief end is his own glory. What's the end that God is moving towards? What's the final result that he's seeking? Buckle up, Americans. It's not our comfort and prosperity. It's not an easy life for us. It's not a stock market that always goes through the roof. God's chief end is his own glory. And if you get sideways on that, which, let's be honest, it's really easy to do, you begin to be confused about how it is that God could be wise. Because when you start to think, like most of us are prone to do, that what God ought to be most concerned about is your own, my own, our own comfort, you will look at your circumstances, you'll look at your situation, you'll look at the the scenarios you find yourself in, and you'll say, God, what are you doing? God, why would you put me in this situation or this circumstance? God, how could this possibly be part of your plan? And in all of those questions, what you're really saying is, God, I'm not sure you're really wise. God, I think there may be a better way to go about things. Now, you wouldn't say it out loud like that. You may not say it out loud at all. 
But it's so easy for us to become convinced that the most important thing in the universe is us and our own comfort and our own security and our own prosperity and our own health and our own advancement. And when you begin to think that way, I think what you need to hear is the rebuke that Martin Luther offered Erasmus in the 1500s. He said, your thoughts about God are too small. Your thoughts about God are too small. When you begin to think that the almighty creator of the universe exists for the sole end of making you comfortable according to your own definition of comfort, your thoughts of God are way too small. God's chief end is not your comfort or my comfort or the prosperity of our nation or the prosperity of this church. God's chief end is his own glory. He seeks the best end, his own glory, and he always seeks it according to the best means. He knows the best way to get to his own glory. Now, how many of you remember as a child getting on an airplane and getting to walk up to the cockpit? 9-11 kind of changed some of this, but I remember a few times when I was little uh, really getting to go in and sort of stand in the crowded little cockpit space and the pilot would talk to you as a kid and maybe they'd give you a little button or a little set of wings or something like that and he would say, okay, this is what this does and this is what that does. I remember doing that as a kid. Now, my question to you is, if you and I were traveling to Kenya and something happened to the pilot, would you be comfortable with me raising my hand and say, don't worry, I've been in the cockpit before. I was six. Pilot gave me the grand tour. I know all the buttons. I can take over. Anybody? Nobody. We all recognize there's a world of difference in a child who has stood in a cockpit and a trained pilot who actually knows how to fly an airplane. This is what you and I have to remind ourselves of. It's an idea similar to one we talked about this last Wednesday. The distance, the gap, the gulf between a child who has stood in the cockpit and a finely trained, educated pilot is nothing. That gap is nothing compared to creatures like you and me and the Creator. And yet all the time, with our attitudes, with our words, with our questions we question God's wisdom. We look at the creator and we say, God, are you sure you're doing the best thing the best way? God, I'm not sure you consulted me on this. God, don't you need my input on how I think things ought to be going? Who are we in our smallness and our finiteness and our ignorance and our sinfulness? Who are we to question the way that God runs the universe? Who are we to think that we could run it any better, that we're more wise? The wisdom of God only makes sense when you realize that God's chief end is his own glory. He's all wise. He seeks the greatest end through the best means. That end is his own glory. One last piece of this definition. The wisdom of God is rooted in his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his goodness. And really, we could keep listing attributes, but I just limited this point to three. And I just want you to think about possible scenarios that have occurred throughout history. History is filled with 
people who had important decisions to make, really important decisions, and they didn't have all the facts. Maybe you've been in a situation like that where you had a really important decision to make and you just weren't clear or sure on all the facts. You understand that's never happened to God. Never. In the history of the universe, he's all-knowing. In his wisdom, as he makes decisions, he knows all the facts. History's filled with people who had lots of good information, and they knew exactly what needed to be done, but they just didn't have the power or the ability to see it done. And maybe you've been in a situation like that. You saw the situation clearly, you knew what needed to to happen or what needed to occur, and you just didn't have the power, for whatever reason, to make it happen. You understand that's never happened to God. He's omnipotent. He has unlimited power to do whatever it is that he wants to do. History's filled with people who had incredible power in their sphere of influence and who used that power for evil, wicked, selfish ends. And again, you understand that that's never happened with God. He has all of the facts, he has all of the power, and he uses all of that information, all of that power, all of his wisdom for good ends. Now, there's situations where you look at your life and you say, I don't see it. I don't understand it. That's okay. You don't have to see it or understand it. God doesn't expect you to see and understand everything that he sees and understands. That's what we mean when he says, Romans 16, he's the only wise God. He has wisdom that you don't have. He doesn't call you to be all-knowing or all-powerful or wise. He calls you and me to have faith. Now, if we wanted to look and point and say, that's where you can see God's wisdom, where would we look? I want to suggest a few places that you could look. Number one, the wisdom of God is clearly seen in creation. If you have eyes to see it, you can look at the created order and you can see the wisdom of God. Think about the opening chapters of Genesis. God speaks and things come into existence. And over and over, God says, this is good. This is good. This is good. And then at the end of the process of creation, he says, this is very good. The goodness of creation points to a wise creator, a wise designer. And the psalmist agrees with this idea. Psalm 104, 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. You can look around at the created order if you have eyes to see it, and you can say that thing that God has made, whether it be a small thing or a big thing, proclaims the wisdom of God. Secondly, the wisdom of God is clearly seen in his word, in the scriptures. The Bible reveals the wisdom of God. I want to show you an old verse in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is speaking to the, the newly formed nation of Israel, and just listen to what Moses says. He says, see, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom. Not your own wisdom and your own ideas, but in listening to the commandments and the truths revealed by the Lord to Israel through Moses. That will be your wisdom and your understanding. In the sight of the peoples, who, 
when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this is a great nation and a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this law that I set before you today? The scriptures contain God's wisdom. And the scriptures have the potential and the power to make you a wise person. We're going to come back to that idea in a few minutes. Where else could you look to see the wisdom of God? One more important answer. The wisdom of God is uniquely, not just clearly, but uniquely seen in redemption. It's uniquely seen in redemption. We read from 1 Corinthians 1 earlier. I want to read just a couple of those verses again. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22 to 24. It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Signs and wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God in the wisdom of God. Paul understood in the ancient world in the first century that people were looking for two kinds of religion. There was people, there were people in Paul's day who wanted a religion of power. Power. They wanted to tap in to some supernatural power. They wanted to harness it and they wanted to use it towards their own ends, toward their own self-advancement. Paul knew there's people who only are religious because they want some sort of power. He also understood there's other people who only want religion or philosophy or a worldview. They only want it because it will give them intellectual credibility in the prevailing culture, wisdom. They want people to look at them and say how smart they are, how educated they are. He, he understood People wanted a religion of power. They wanted a religion of wisdom. You understand, 2,000 years later, we're the same people. All across the United States, people interested in religion, in spirituality, in God. Why? Some of them want to use God for their own ends. They want to tap into some sort of power that will make their life better as they define a better life. They just want a religion of power. Other people, it's becoming more and more common, want a religion of wisdom. They want the world to look at their faith and say, look how enlightened those people are. Look how advanced those people are. They're not narrow-minded like those old types of religious people. Look at them and how intelligent and, and broad-minded they are. They want a religion of wisdom. Paul wasn't selling either of those things. We dare not sell either of those things. Look what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. That's it. That's what we have to offer. It's not a power that you can harness. It's actually a power that will harness you. It's not a wisdom that the world will stand up and applaud and say, this is fantastic, we love what you're doing but it's a, a wisdom that will change you. We preach Christ 
crucified. Why was Paul content to preach Christ crucified? It's because Paul knew what we need to know. It's that all human beings follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. This is what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that it was to be desired to make one wise. She saw, Adam saw, that this tree was desirable for the pursuit of wisdom. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We do the exact same thing over and over and over again. We plow forward in our own strength and our own abilities and our own understanding and our own desires, and we seek wisdom on our own terms rather than listening to the wisdom that God has offered us. The Bible calls that sin. It's when you think you know better than God. It's when God says, don't do this, and you think, no, I really think that I ought to do it. It's when God says, don't cross that line, and you think, you know, I think I know better than him, and I think I'm going to go ahead and cross it. It's when God says, this is how I've designed something, and you say, well, I think I have a better idea, and I'm going to redesign it my way. The Bible says that sin separates us from God. It destroys the relationship that we were created to have with him. We're all guilty of this kind of sin. We uh, inherit a, a sinful nature from Adam and Eve, and then we just plow forward just like they did, pursuing wisdom on our own terms, rebelling against the creator, essentially laughing at his face, mocking him, and denying his wisdom. It destroys our relationship with God, and that relationship that we were created to have with God can only be restored through the cross. Paul knew all of this, and it's why he said, look, I'm not here to offer power. I'm not here to make you wise in the eyes of the world. I'm here to preach Christ crucified. You understand, that's what we proclaim when we take the Lord's Supper together. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are coming before the Lord. We are not boasting in our own power or abilities. In fact, we're acknowledging how weak we are. We can't save ourselves. God, we need you to do it. We're not coming to God saying, God, we've been doing some thinking this week and we've got it all figured out. We're coming to God saying, God, we don't know much at all. Nothing, really. And we're completely dependent on your wisdom. We see his wisdom revealed most clearly, most uniquely at the cross. And it's what we celebrate and it's what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper together. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have agreed with God about your sin and you have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, you've been obedient to the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. So I'm going to ask you to take your elements And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to read a few verses, as we do, from the book of 1 Peter. I'll put these verses up on the screen. First, you can take the the bread, cracker. We're going to read a few verses here from 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 24, says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And as we take the bread, we remember the body of Christ that bore our sins on the tree. I ask you to take the cup. This time we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verse 18 and 19. Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot, And we take the cup and we remember the blood of Christ that ransomed us from our futile ways. We're going to try to end with a few thoughts of application this morning. We're going to try to answer this question one last time. How should we live in light of God's wisdom? I want to give you four suggestions. Number one. How do we live in light of God's wisdom? We should fear and we should worship God. We should fear God and we should worship God. The Bible connects both of these actions, both of these attitudes towards God's wisdom. We read this in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We are called to fear God and to see that as the beginning of wisdom, and we're called to worship God. Paul says this in Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We fear God. We worship God. Secondly, we ought to seek wisdom. If you and I really believe that God is omnisapient, that he is the only wise God, that his ways are unsearchable and unscrutable, He has wisdom. We ought to come to him and ask him for wisdom. I encourage you to look at these verses in Psalm 119, Proverbs 2, James 1. All of them are encouragements. They include promises for people who will come to God and humbly ask for wisdom. It's just worth asking ourselves this morning. When is the last time you despaired of your own wisdom and you came before the Lord in prayer and you said, God, I don't know what to do, and I need wisdom. When's the last time that you said, God, I have no clue how to move forward in this situation, but I believe that your word contains wisdom, and I'm going to commit myself to the scriptures. We ought to be people who seek wisdom. Thirdly, we should be active in a local church. Ephesians 3 is one of my all-time favorite Bible verses. It just gives me something to think about that I'm not sure I've ever quite got over. Ephesians 3 says, through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? If you only read Ephesians 3, you might think of them as angelic beings. But when you read before Ephesians 3 and after Ephesians 3, in the book of Ephesians, you realize these are the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are demonic beings that stand in opposition to God and in defiance to God and oppose his people. And Paul says, if you can take this in, that right now God is making his wisdom known to these demonic enemies and he's making his wisdom known through the church. Through the church. That means when you gather together with your church family in a room like this to sing, when you covenant together with other people and agree to be part of a church family, when you're part of a small group Bible study and you, you talk together and you pray together and you question together and you find answers together, when you serve in our church and you minister to the needs of other people, when you pray for your church family, when you contribute financially to your church, when you are part of a church... You are actually part of Almighty God proclaiming his wisdom to the demonic enemies who oppose him even today. It's a remarkable thought. That's how God is making his wisdom known to his enemies, through the church. Not through a nation, not through mighty, powerful people, not through folks with lots of advanced degrees, but through the church. One last thought. How should we live in light of God's wisdom? We should have joyful faith. Joyful faith. If we believe that God really knows what he's doing with the universe, he is seeking the greatest end through the best means. I'm not sure that we should be grouchy people. I'm not sure that we should be angry people. I'm not sure that we should be combative people. I think we ought to be people who have confident, joyful faith, trusting in and resting in the wisdom of God. And we're going to end this morning in our series with a quote from a theologian named John Dagg. He said it better than I could say it, and we'll end with this. He, he's talking about God's wisdom and the call to faith. He says, it should fill us with joy that infinite wisdom guides the affairs of the world. Many of its events are shrouded in darkness and mystery and inextricable confusion sometimes seems to reign. Often, wickedness prevails and God seems to have forgotten the creatures that he has made. Our own path through life is dark and devious, beset with difficulties and dangers. How full of consolation is the doctrine that infinite wisdom directs every event, brings order out of confusion and light out of darkness, and to those who love God, causes all things, whatever be their present aspect and apparent tendency, to work together for good.